Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. Uh, Tonight, we are talking about uh, the Trinity. We've been moving through last week, Pastor Sean started us off looking at the character of God as revealed in the Trinity. And tonight we're talking about the Son. The Son. God is not distant. He is not disconnected, but he is right here with us in every single way. The Son, Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. He is with us. He became one of us so that we might know and behold the love and righteousness of God. So that no matter what life brings, the steadying constant is God's partnership and companionship with us. Like Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and he illuminates this aspect of God's character in dramatic, dramatic fashion. Last week, Pastor Sean, our senior pastor, introduced the Trinity, the tri-unity of God. Specifically, he introduced the Holy Spirit and the indwelling comfort and assurance and power of God that is revealed and provided through the Spirit. Pastor Sean also briefly explained uh, the whole idea of the Trinity, the one God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... uh, He then kicked it down the road and said, "Ah, I'll let them deal with it. He was like, Dick Thompson will handle it. Dick's here next week, by the way, talking about the father. Don't miss it. So good. Um, He's a good man. And I think he just has such an insight onto the father heart of God, the tenderness of God. You you won't want to miss it. Um, Well, anyway, for some of you, you might be like, Trinity, what are you talking about? Try unity, Trinity. This is a complex thing. It's super complex. And God revealed uh, himself in the Bible and into creation as one God, the creator of the universe, all-powerful and singular in his holiness. And yet, and yet, somehow, three distinct persons. The reality of the Trinity, the triunity, which is clearly revealed in Scripture from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, and it's inferred by Jesus, is... I'm just going to be real. It's impossible to understand. Well, I should say probably. It's probably impossible to understand it. It's like uh, I have a five-year-old, and uh, his name's Isaac. He's awesome. And I think he's pretty smart. You know, he's a pretty smart guy. Also, he throws a mean spiral. It's pretty great. (laughs) But Isaac is five. And it's like if I sat down with Isaac and was like, brother, let's talk about trigonometry. Do you think he'd handle that well? He, no, he's like just getting like addition, you know? He's like two plus two is four. He's like, yeah. And then three plus one is four. Whoa. Like he, it's significant. Addition is significant to him. A subtraction, we're not even quite there yet. Like, and I'm talking with fingers. And so you think I could sit down with Isaac and be like, all right, let's talk about the functional use of a radian. Do you think he'd get that? No, not hardly. Not hardly. Not for a moment. And notice I'm using an analogy here. Do you guys know what an analogy is? An analogy is when you take two things that are not the same, like explaining trigonometry to a five-year-old and contemplating the Trinity. When you take two things that are not the same 
and you use one of them to shed light on the other. They're not the same. They're different things. And yet analogies are like exclusively and extensively the thing we use to explain the Trinity because it's impossible to explain it. Every analogy will fall short, not just of the Trinity, but of the thing it's meant to describe because they're different. They're not the same. They're close, but not the same. And so the fact that we use analogies even just reveals that we just can't, we're just never really going to get there. You know, the, the analogy that I like relate to the most, or I think is like, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay. Is like, here I am, I'm a dude, you know, Brian, I'm like a guy, just one. And yet I am a son to Roger and Debbie Williams. I am a father to Isaac and Ellie Williams, and I am a husband to Amy Williams. So I'm one guy, but yet in, within the world and sphere that I live, I am perceived in three different specific ways. Now, that's helpful, but just not quite right. Like, it's, it's not complete. It doesn't quite capture all that there really is. It's not the full picture. And the reason we use analogies, as I said, is because we can't quite do it. And so for me, what I have found over the years, maybe if you're somebody who's like been wrestling with the Trinity for a long time, as I've wrestled with the Trinity and trying to understand the three in one, the God that is triune, this, like, how can I handle it? How can I reason with it? How can I contextualize it? I've just come to this place, and this has been helpful for me, that the why of me perceiving the Trinity, why is it so hard for me to perceive the Trinity, has been much more helpful for me to contemplate and reckon with than the how is the Trinity constructed and, and how does the Trinity hold together? Why is it so hard has helped me with not understanding the how. And so I thought of ways to communicate this, but then, you know, the Bible Project, if you know that, uh, they do a great job with things. And so they give a great visual that helps explain the why. And so let's just, I just want to roll this for you. It's about a minute long to help us understand why it's so hard to grasp the Trinity. And maybe that we never will. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. Was that helpful? Uh, the visuals are great. It's so helpful. It's literally, I think impossible for us to grasp the Trinity. And I have I, often I'll be like, there's a lot of things in life where it's like on, on, on this side of eternity, before death, before that veil has been removed, before I sit face to face before God with no confusion, with no barriers. 
And I think like, oh, at that time I'll understand. But it's totally possible that even on that side of eternity, I might look at God and go, what? This is overwhelming. This is so far beyond. I can't even comprehend. And there's every reason to believe that. So if the Trinity is frustrating, it's okay. Yeah, super frustrating. <laughs> like It's hard to grasp. Give yourself a little grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So Brian Howard's talked about this before, and I think uh, he made a good point about it, so I won't go into it too much. But does understanding something precede it being true? Do you have to understand something before it's true? No, not hardly. There's so, uh, most of our life, we go about doing things that we like understand to be true, but don't understand how or why. We don't need to know the how to understand that it just works. And so it is with the Trinity. We may not understand him, but, but, you know who does understand? It's him. And you know what he understands? Us. He understands us. He reveals himself to us in all the ways that we need to know him. And one of those ways is through Jesus. And so tonight, if you have your Bible or Bible app, whatever, we're going to go to the book of Philippians. We're going to look in chapter two. And uh, we're going to look at chapter two, verses one through 11. And really what drew me to this passage wasn't verses one through four. It was verses six through 11. But as I, it, I just couldn't leave out one through four. Verses one through four are just so beautiful. And I do think poignant to what uh, Brian just talked about, what he announced and the things that are ahead and, and really the subject at hand. So uh, Philippians chapter two, it'll also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible or have one in your hand. Chapter two, verses one through four, it goes like this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others each of you to the interests of others. So the Apostle Paul, he's the one who wrote this, and it's a letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi in the first century. And that church was a group of people who were experiencing a lot of unexpected things, a lot of challenging things, a lot of curious things that they didn't quite understand. And there was a lot looking ahead for them that was a giant mystery there could be a lot of pain or there could be a lot of joy. They just didn't know. As we as a community enter this next season and walk through it and navigate it, I pray and I hope that we may be this kind of a people. I, I, I pray and I hope that I may be this kind of a person. The sort of person who is encouraged from being united with Christ Jesus who is comforted by his love and his love, not just for me, but, but the reality that he loves all of you as well. I know for me, that's been helpful to not just think like, oh Lord, you love me. Yes, you do. Thank you for that. But also you love all of them. And so I can entrust not just myself to you, but all the people I love to you. Also, may we be a sort of people who are united with others, united through the common sharing of his spirit. 
May we be tender people, full of compassion and springing, springing forth just abundantly with joy. May we be people doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, valuing others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others. You know, change is unsettling. It is unnerving and uncomfortable at times. And yet, that discomfort, that, that low hum of anxiety that you feel in the midst of it or with this prospect of it, it's no reason to abandon what Christ has done in us and for us and what he's going to do with us. We cannot abandon those things. We must hold tight to them. And I mean us. I mean us. Not just you, us. Together, we need to hold tight to these things. No matter the faces we change individually or corporately, together we hold tight to who Christ is, what he's done for us, what he's going to do in us. Change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. But Christ is with us in the midst of it all. You know, um, because of Jesus, we never have to face change alone. And the difference between change in life, being an inconvenience or an adventure, is largely who you're in it with. Who are you in it with? He is with us. And he is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs even your greatest trials. The trials you've faced already or those that might come, he is with you and he will accomplish things greater, greater than the, the cost of those trials. I think it's easy for us to love the idea of adventure. Anybody think like adventure is like so awesome or there's somebody you follow on Instagram and you're like, oh man, they're like on a sailboat and they're just like going around the world and wow, that's so wonderful and man, that's life. You know, like it's like, ah, uh, and of course they're like, it looks beautiful, and they're usually like the most beautiful people, and you're like, how oh, what? Like, somehow this worked out. Well, the reality is that adventure isn't all whimsy and delight. Not hardly. It's usually not so tame. In fact, adventure without risk and perseverance is no adventure at all. It's not really adventure unless there's risk and a need to persevere. Change, transitions, unknowns, risks, they're going to come your way in life. And with them will be moments of frustration. There'll be moments of inconvenience, discomfort, right alongside the moments of delight and discovery. But navigating those, whatever they may look like, with Jesus shifts every aspect of it. The good, the ugly, it shifts all of it. From an inconvenience to an adventure. Every moment in life. Everyone you face, no matter what it looks like, is an opportunity for the hope we have in Christ to triumph. Every change or transition is adventurous when you know Jesus. Do you know him? Then what do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? He may lead you into unexpected places, but he's also the one who has the power to deliver. We can venture into great the greatest adventures, the greatest risks. 
yet not fear because he has made the promise to deliver us. And not just deliver us out of like suffering, but actually deliver us into life and an abundant life, a life beyond abundance, John 10.10. 10. He is faithful and he is capable of keeping that amazing promise. Life with God is the greatest adventure in all of the human experience. I firmly believe that. And you don't have to go to the other side of the world to experience it. You don't have to do crazy things. You can experience it literally right now where you're sitting in that chair. All it takes is a willing heart. All it takes is a yes. Whatever you got right now, Lord, yes. And before you know it, you might be off into places and things and experiences that you never thought were possible and you didn't even get up out of your chair. And I don't just mean visions. I mean literally healing. It might be a profound sense of relief. It might be freedom. Freedom from an addiction. Freedom from fear. Freedom from whatever it might be. When Christ is supreme, he does things that you, you never thought were possible. Every moment in life is an opportunity when you know Christ. You know, my hope and my prayer for myself, for all of you, for my children, is that the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord would define who we are. And that no matter what life throws at you, the hope and the security you have with him and in him will triumph over the greatest threats that this temporary world can threaten us with. When you think Israel Hamas, when you think World War III, Christ. Whatever it is, we can't control this world. We don't know what might come, but what we know is that we'll be with him. He'll be with us. And he's the one who delivers every time. He will deliver us. No matter what may be ahead, he will deliver us. Whatever fear you might have, maybe it's something much narrower and smaller and more front and center, that test you have tomorrow. Enter it with him. I don't know that he'll give you an A, but he'll help you get through it. He'll help you through it onto the other side. Change is not just an unfortunate thing we have to deal with. It has a purpose. And the difference between it being an adventure or an inconvenience is a matter of who you're in it with. If you're in it with Jesus, there's nothing to fear. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, back to Philippians 2. Let's go to verse 5. And uh, this is so wonderful. I think it brings to light the uniqueness of Jesus and the God who became one of us. So it starts in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, throughout the whole universe. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoa. Whoa. If you need a passage to memorize, start on this one. 
Spend time in it. If you don't know what to do, if you're like, man, I want to spend time with God, um, but you're not sure where to start, maybe just start this week on this one. Do it every day this week. Go slow. Say, Lord, what can you teach me about yourself from this? What can you teach me about me about this? What can you teach me about this world because of this and through this? Verse six, we read, who, this is talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, He's God. Jesus is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, he chose to be nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became one of us, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, Christmas is coming, right? Anybody else pumped about that? So pumped about that. I'm not into Halloween. I know some people super into it. I'm just like, let's move on. Let's get going. Thanksgiving, Christmas, bring it. I like the lights. I like the happy. It's, it's great. The candy's good though too. I do like the candy. Actually, post-Halloween's better candy because it's so cheap and no, everybody has extra. So they just put it out free everywhere. You don't have to trick or treat to get candy. You just wait till after Halloween. So good. Christmas is coming. And at that time, as you guys, I hope, know, or you can now, we celebrate the immense, the mind-boggling, improbable reality that God would embrace the weakness, the limitations, and the vulnerabilities of humanity, so much so that he would become one of us. God the Son, God, became a human he was born a vulnerable, dependent baby to an impoverished and marginalized family. God the Son would willingly leave behind the glories of heaven for the sweat, grime, toil, and trouble of human interactions. While there are many things I could point out about the character of God as revealed by Jesus, uh, I had to only pick three because you know time. And so uh, I picked three. And you may think, oh, he's going humility because Philippians to this passage clearly humility. Psych, I'm not. But <laughs> humility is the focal point of this passage. And you can't, you can't reflect on Christ without recognizing the humility of God. And that's the whole focus of this, that, that God is humble. That he is a God that does not need from us, but actually comes and serves us. He lowers himself to lift us up. Uh, it's a remarkable, it's just remarkable. Like, and I pray that Christ-like humility would manifest within each one of us, with, it, with each one of us. But like I said, I'm not talking about humility. I'm talking about three other things. And the first one is this, that he is the God of empathy. Jesus the Son reveals to us this characteristic about God, that he is the God of empathy. He didn't just stand outside the puddle of brokenness and despair and sin that humanity had gotten itself mired in, that each one of us was mired in. He didn't just stand outside of it going, get up out of there, come on. You shouldn't be in there. He came and he sat right down in it with us. He knows the frustration of being misunderstood, John 6. He knows the grief and tragic events and circumstances and, and all that you can handle in the midst of that, that you could experience, John 11. He experienced physical pain and weakness, Luke 23. 
Jesus navigated stress, Matthew 26. He was tempted to sin, Luke 4. God doesn't just see your life's trials and difficulties. He doesn't just see them. He's experienced them himself. He's experienced them himself. He knows them and can relate to them. And this is true even of sin. You may be like, heresy. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is true even of sin. Because though he himself knew no sin, he bore our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is well acquainted with the results of failure and sin and the separation from God that it causes. He knows the experience of sin intimately, even though he himself has never sinned. God doesn't just see your life's trials and difficulties. He's experienced them himself, even the failure and sin that you've walked through, the shame that you feel in the midst of it or in the wake of it. You know, a phrase that God has given, uh, uh, an idea that God has put on my heart and given me these words that I, I repeat many times to many people. Some of you maybe heard me say it before, is that Jesus walks the road of sorrow and suffering, but what a beautiful road it is because he is on it. Sorrow and suffering are the fertile soil from which he brings life and abundance in an otherwise unfathomable circumstance. Fathomable. I always try and use that word and I can't say it, but I like it. It's a good word. But I, fathomable. That was better. Yeah. Thanks. Like, think about, just visualize for me, with me. Huh, I can do it too. Um, like, think of dirt rutted road, it's dark, it's, everything's dead, and you just see Jesus walking down the middle of it, and in his wake is life. In his wake is flowers and abundance and beauty. It's, it's everything good, and yet the weeds, the, the ruts, all of that stuff's still there. He just brings life to the midst of it. Literally in his wake, beauty happens, and yet it happens on the most terrible road you could imagine. That's life. We're in this place that is rough, navigating a life that is full of so much uncertainty. And yet we can do it with him and not be mired in it, not be trapped in it. He comes to walk it with us. How marvelous is that? In his wake is life and life in abundance. And no matter what happens in life, there's a day where we will be fully redeemed in heaven. You know, I love the story of Stephen, who's getting stoned. <laughs> Sounds great, right? <laughs> he's, he's being stoned to death. And yet, he's sitting there. And you know what God gives him in the midst of that? A vision of God. A vision of heaven. He gives him hope. He gives him peace. So much so that Stephen, as he's dying, as he's being murdered for just loving people and telling them about Jesus, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May we be such a people in much lesser trials. A people that love because we have the hope of Jesus that no matter what this life brings, he is with us and he will redeem us. He will deliver on the promises he's given. And that brings us to the second point. He is a God who redeems. 
Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Man, on the cross, Jesus bore the shame and the guilt and the consequence of humanity's rebellion, of our rebellion. Jesus willingly suffered and died for the love of us, of you and I. He ransomed us away from the just judgment we so deserved. But it didn't end there. He not only experienced that dark river of death, but he was the first to successfully cross it and not be swept away by it. Jesus physically rose from the dead, asserting his authority and his power over death itself and, and exemplifying his power and his will, his desire to redeem all things, including you and I. He was the first, not the last. And we will follow in his wake if we put our trust and our hope in his death, burial, and resurrection and what that means for our lives. Jesus didn't come to replace us, to wipe the earth clean of our foolishness and our wicked hearts. No, he chose to redeem us and to redeem all things. He steps into the chaos that is humanity and says, it's all right, I'm here. Let's do this together. I'll take care of you. As I reflect on the mistakes that I've made during my time here, and there's been a lot, God has shown me time and again that he can and will take shameful things and make them beautiful in ways I thought impossible. He has used my weakness and redeemed it for my betterment, for others' edification, for his glory. And like through it all, I just want to encourage all of you. You do not have to be perfect for God's purposes to prevail. You won't be. Your only hope is his faithfulness and that he's with you. You don't have to be perfect for God's purposes to prevail. Free yourself of that. Anyone who feels that, oh, I'm going to ruin it. I'm going to ruin what God has in mind for me. Oh, I did ruin it. No, you haven't. All we need to be is pursuing of him. He doesn't throw you out. He doesn't throw out your past. He doesn't throw out your weakness. No, he has good plans. And he can untie a knot so complex, no matter how it is, that you thought he can't unravel it. There's no way he can unravel this. He can, and he'll make it useful. Even as I look to what's next for me, I have hope. I have hope. I have hope because hope in him prevails over every possible variable. In the middle of every iteration of the future that could possibly be the constant assurance and hope we all have is that he will be there with us. And he's the God who redeems. So even when I make mistakes, he's the God who redeems. And he'll be there with me. Man, I love this. Paul says, uh, for I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. What shall we fear? What shall we fear? For those who've put their faith in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, what that means for your life, 
The inevitability is that we will be with him in heaven's glory, eternally and completely redeemed. So what do we have to fear? He's the God who redeems. And finally, he's the God who is supreme. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth throughout all of the universe. Every universe. Every, every, every possible iteration of a being will bow before Jesus. There's no greater name than Jesus. There's no greater king than Jesus. There's no greater friend than Jesus. I had ideas about how to like talk about this point, And then I thought there's people who've done it better. <laughs> so let's let them do it. There's this guy, S.M. Lockridge, who back in the 70s became pretty well known for a specific sermon he gave. And he would like give it in different arenas, different places. And it's so powerful. And so as we close out, as the band will come up and we'll end in worship, listen to these four minutes. It's kind of long, but it's so good. It's the end. It's the closing of his famous sermon on Jesus, our King. I wonder if you know him. Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my King? The Bible says he's a King of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, no barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soul is supplied. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life 
is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.